You know what, Annabelle Crabb? What is it, Lisa Hales? I am still on a high from the Matildas. Yep. That I can't was, stop thinking about it. It was so great. And I know I'm not telling the nation anything that everyone else doesn't already know, but it was just it was just really something. And it felt like we just all needed a moment that the whole nation could come around. And yeah. I just can't I couldn't remember the last time that it felt like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And okay, a couple of things. Somebody, um, Patricia Carvelis this morning sent me a Facebook video of 10 years ago when Sam Kerr scored her first World World Cup goal, or her first Matilda's goal, sorry. And it's so moving because she's so little and she's so thrilled and you pan around the um, stadium when they're playing and there's just no crowd. There's nobody there. So (laughs) empty. And how interesting to watch an old sporting clip and have the most noticeable thing that's changed over 10 years is not how good a player she is, it's how many people have noticed and just gone, oh, and put a shout out to a um, column that a colleague of ours, John Lyons, wrote over the week, sort of bringing together the Matildas and all of these other women in the Australian establishment who are sort of sort of stepping up and taking on the roles for which they are, you know, being recognised for their competence. It is a bit of a moment, I think. But the Matildas, oh, my God, I just think it's more, it's the character and the um, – the, the the spirit in which they play the game. Yeah. I loved watching the Optus Sport broadcast because they had a, just a squad of female commentators who knew exactly what they were talking about, were having a good time. There wasn't any of this sort of like dick-waving nonsense that you sometimes get with male commentators. Sorry, but, I mean, they were great male commentators, but, like, it just didn't have that kind of club room feel. It was just all about the joy of the game. One of the things that amazed me was, so when I was a kid, Soccer and cricket were mm. not offered to yeah. girls, and it was just watching the level of skill that not just the Australian team, but everyone was playing yeah. with. I was just like, "What? Uh, uh, why did we ever think girls couldn't play soccer?" Right. Like, it's kind of boggles my mind that we we had this distinction between well, these are sports that women can play and that men can play, and it's kind of encouraging to have those moments. Also, the fact that the stadium was full of blokes who yeah. were very invested in it. Yeah, so. You know, you have sometimes you feel like there hasn't been lots of progress made on lots of different social things, and then you see something like that, and you go, "Oh, actually, yeah, no, some progress has been made." And also that you know, not just that it's an exhilarating thing to watch, but that it's a business proposition. Like it's yes, obviously yeah. massively marketable and profitable. And so, you know, what you would like to see is perhaps some of these women getting paid properly for yeah. the work that they do. The other thing that amazed me was how very rapidly you can get. Very invested in individual players that you become. Oh. So for me, Mackenzie, yeah, hundred percent, Mackenzie Arnold. I was completely. Yeah. I'm like already have been googling like how do I get a Mackenzie Arnold jersey? <laughs> well, um, you can't because they didn't put I one know. out, which is ridiculous. I know. I, I that she's incredible, and also Mary Fowler was the other oh, one that Mary I just. Fowler. She was just adorable. My daughter Audrey, is sixteen, um, said to me last night, "I just want to be a ball." hurtling towards the goal <laughs> so that Mackenzie Arnold will dive through the air and seize me. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I also feel like that. I I mean, as you know, I am obsessed by sports psychology. And so in the game where it got to the most 
unbelievable number oh, of penalties at the unbearable. end. Unbearable. Absolutely unbearable. Because, I mean, one of the beautiful things about sports broadcasting is you get the close-up of people's faces. So yeah. you feel almost like you can see what's going through. And it, I, I found all of that absolutely fascinating that you could see on the face, like I don't know her name, but the French girl who kicked the goal oh. really wide and, it, and Mackenzie Arnold didn't even have to dive for it. There was something in her face before mm. she even kicked it. And I might have been influenced by the commentary because the commentary also said, you know, that it was her first World Cup game yeah, or something, something like that. I just bled for her. Same. But there was something in her face before she even took the kick that I felt like this isn't going to go well. Interesting. Yeah, she but just you looked- are an incredibly experienced sporting <laughs> observer. Like, I mean, <laughs> she- you have a real knack for knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> I am an astute student of human nature though. That's but um, she – and then her face, oh, my God, when it when – it, she was almost like – the horror and the disbelief on her face was but that's horrible. The thrill of sport, to right? See. It's, it's that heart in mouth of thinking this is either going to be brilliant or devastating. Yeah, and, you know, both possibilities are alive at the same time, which yeah. is why it's so gripping. But um, then Mackenzie Arnold to have to then like reset every time. Oh so if a guy's got three, you've got to reset. Right. I, I, I do not know. I would love to know what you're taught and what goes into your brain to enable you to to be able to do that, which. Brings me to another oh, can thing. I, before, we finish, yes. before we leave the Matildas, can I just say one thing that another thing that Audrey said to me that I thought, oh, I, didn't look, I haven't looked it up like that, but you're absolutely right. So Audrey said, look, the cool thing about the Matildas is that Australia is full of people who just got interested in football like, and who are just like, oh, this is really fun to watch. And she said the difference is that you can talk about it to absolutely anybody and nobody is saying, oh, you only just got interested in football because of yes. the Matildas. Like yeah. there's no kind of like you're forward. It's just full of like heaps of women going like, oh, my God, who even am I? I love football now. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so nobody is being all like, well, I've been here forever, yeah. dickheads. No, it's felt it's felt really inclusive. It reminded me a lot of the Sydney Olympics, including yeah. with all the community events that would, people would go to where there'd be big screens mm-hmm, set up mm. in places and you'd just be bonding with people that you don't even know yeah. because of because of that. Right, now off you pop on your little digression. Oh, sports psychology, yes. Oh, God. I was waiting for this just moment. Just going to go get a cup of tea. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I've mentioned this documentary series before. It's on Netflix. It's called Untold. Um, and I, oh, I spoke about it. Yeah. With the, it was a deep dive on how Australia won the America's Cup. Yeah. It was brilliantly done. Oh, God, yeah, I still haven't watched that. I have to. Somebody recommended to me when I said I'd like that, they said you need to watch Untold Breaking Point. It's incredible. And it really was. So it was a documentary about a tennis player called Marty Fish, who I'd never actually heard of. Had you ever heard of him? Sounds He's a really yeah. kind of prominent um, player in the sort of uh, first part of the 2000s. So oh, okay. he went – the video starts with this – sporting academy that he and Andy Roddick went to who used to be world number one. Um, Yes, I have confirmed, heard of him, (laughs) just um, not the fish guy. This academy was renowned for helping kids achieve mental toughness and it was about not showing weakness and, you know. Why do I dread this? Yeah, um, and so all of these things about, you know, only showing strength, you know, that real kind of hardcore, like never never showing your weakness kind of thing. And I'm just going to open my phone so I've got my notes because yeah. I don't, don't want to forget a moment of this goodness. Oh, God. Anyway, so. Um, now, when you're taking notes that you're like serious sales mode. It, it, look at the length of the notes I took on this too. <laughs> Might need to incorporate a wee that's break a, in for here. The listen- yeah, that's right. For the <laughs> listeners, it's extensive. It runs to paragraphs. Um, so he, off the back of this camp, goes and lives with the Roddicks and he and Andy Roddick oh. become really, really close friends. Okay. And, and Andy Roddick's dad is kind of sounds like one of those tennis dads who's right. really like, you know, yep, yep you've got to be tough, you've got to be strong. It's 4 a.m., kids, get out of bed, get your asses down to the court kind yep. of vibe. Anyway, so they, he and Andy Roddick are both kind of doing quite well, but then Andy Roddick really kind of rockets 
rockets up the top of the okay. list and he's then the world number one. Oh, and Fish is the world number 50 or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and he's not quite got the same killer instinct as Andy Roddick's, Andy Roddick's got. But then Andy Roddick gets a bit sidelined because he has the misfortune to be landing just as uh-huh. Federer Nadal yeah. and Djokovic come into world tennis. And right. so he kind of rapidly just feels like I can't, I just yeah. can't do this anymore. So he retires. There's a bit in it actually that almost made me cry where when they're talking about the pressure to perform at that level mm. and the stress, Andy Roddick says to this day there's a kind of sports bar that if he eats gives him a borderline panic attack because he associates <sighs> the taste of it with that environment. <sighs> my God. Anyway, Marty Fish then decides, you know what, I've got one shot at this, I'm going to get really serious. And so he gets this trainer, he absolutely shreds weight and then he starts rocketing up through the rankings and he's doing incredibly well and he's got the killer instinct. Right. Um, And he gets to world number eight. And he's kind of, the pressure is mounting and things are becoming, you know, really difficult and he's kind of struggling with it. And then he talks about, I mean, as well as just the pressure to perform at mm. this level, he gives an insight into the kind of overthinking that you get into and it gives you a sense of how maddening it must be. And he's, and he's talking about this game where somebody's serving for match point mm. and he says, so in his head his thought process is like, okay, well, he knows my forehand's my weak receiving shot for the serve, so he's going to fire it to my forehand. But actually he knows that I'd be thinking that because I also know that my forehand's the weak, so he's probably going to go to the backhand. But then also he would know that I'd be making that calculation. So what he's going to do, he's going to go to the forehand because he'll think that I think he's thinking that and so he's going to go. And it's like this, it's just (laughs) an absolute hotbed of anxious thought process, you know, that when you get into this loop. So he's in this environment all the time, starving basically to be as fit and shredded as he needs to be um, and trying to do this kind of killer stuff. And so then what happens is he's made the US Open semifinals in 2012 Mm. playing Roger Federer. Yeah. In the car on the way to the semifinal, he has the most massive absolute meltdown breakdown and he's Googling panic attack, like what can I do, like on the way to the thing and he's having such a breakdown that his wife says to him, you know, you don't have to actually play. You don't have to go through with it. And so then they cut to the commentators going, we're hearing that Marty Fish has withdrawn from the US Open semifinal. He's not playing. We don't know what's going on. And he pulled out of the US Open semifinal. And then he has a complete breakdown and basically just cannot leave his bed and then needs kind of psychological retraining. Like he's in utter, utter acute crisis and basically has to be retrained to get rid of the mentality about never showing weakness that's been drilled in, you know, from childhood. So it, it was an absolutely fascinating. And then wow. he's kind of, he's come back into tennis. He was like the captain of the US Davis Cup right. team, but he's come into it with a quite different mindset about how you oh my god yeah it was what a really story. interesting yeah and Andy Roddick who's in it they still obviously are good friends Andy Roddick talks about just not really understanding the mental toll because obviously some people and th- maybe this is the difference between Novak Djokovic and Marty Fish maybe some people are just or, or, or Mackenzie Arnold and mere mortals maybe some people just have more mental capacity to operate under that kind of pressure and that that way of being suits them. Or maybe they have different 
sports like Ash Barty had a different, yeah. helped by mindset coach Ben Crow, had right. a different mm. philosophy that she brought into it. Well, her philosophy has been really central to, um, yeah. to her success and her philosophy is not about the strength of the individual at all or the bulletproof nature of the individual. She's sort of incorporated failure into her model, yeah. which is about being part of a team where you've all kind of got each other's backs, which is like such an interesting um approach for such a solo kind of totally. sport, right? Like I think. But that um, was the other thing, sorry, just to go back mm. to Matilda's. Sorry, no, I'm on a long monologue here. But, you are. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> this is this is getting towards driving through walnut plantations in California <laughs> from me or goose eggs and duck eggs. What are the it's differences? True. I'll never be able to tease you about those things again. The thing with the Matilda's game that qualified them for the semis that was so incredible was it was like it, it went from a team sport to a one-on-one sport at, in, the, yeah. in the extra time. But I still think having your team like on the sidelines mm. there with you and that if you miss it, they're with you, but if you get yep. it, then they're celebrating with you. <clears throat> I think that probably can't be underestimated yep. and that's why I think the Ash Barty model is super clever yeah. because then you're kind of feeling like it's not just right? you out there. Yeah, and I think the thing, one of the things that I think is so, so nourishing about watching the Matildas is not just watching this bunch of women at the top of their game being, you know, justly appreciated by a huge crowd but there's something so powerful in just in the decisions that they're making and you see that the decisions that they make are always you know invariably good they're sort of sporting there and in just that moment where you see Sam Kerr going out through the crowd and she takes her top off and gives it to that kid yeah like that kid's face for me is the image of the tournament like it's just and that's just a decision that Sam Kerr's made to just, just make that. that kid's life, Yeah, you know. And oh, yeah. Yeah, just anyway, I think they make good decisions. On the tennis front, though, I, I'm sure I've told you before about um, that film McEnroe and Borg. Um, I think you urgently yeah. need to see it. Yeah. So it's a drama, like it's the um, – Oh, okay. Yeah. But they – it basically looks at the backgrounds of McEnroe and Borg because they were, you know, um, huge rivals and – they had very, very different demeanours and characters. So Borg was sort of like the ice cool, never lost his cool kind of guy and McEnroe was obviously pinging around the court like a mad (laughs) sort of scamp. And what the film explores is the fact that up until he was about 15, Borg was exactly the same. But was then trained to turn his anger and rage inwards and to present an outwardly calm front and to use his temper to like express it in a in excellence in tennis rather than you know wow, an losing explosion. his shit. And Borg also channeled all of this um, nervous energy into um, maintaining patterns of behaviour that were the same every time he went to Wimbledon. So like oh. he would absolutely ensure that he would. Every every Wimbledon that he played at, he would um, stay in the same hotel, in the same room. He had this routine that he would do the night before he played where he'd go through like 30 rackets and, you know, do this sort of real routine. He'd always fly his parents over. He'd always wear the same shirt on the plane, I think. Yeah, right. Um, I did some research on exactly this in Any mm. Ordinary Day and it's a thing, it's very common to people who have a line of work that has a lot of luck involved in the outcome. So sailors, elite sports people, performers, um, surgeons, anything that involves a degree of farmers, I'm not sure. Bit of luck in farming. I'm sure. No, it's where what you 
because humans are hardwired to we like certainty and yeah. so you're hardwired to try to have maximize the control certainty, and, certainty. Yeah. and so when when it's something that you really have very you have very little control over how you're going to play on any given day and is McEnroe just going to get a ball in by an extra millimeter mm-hmm. um so that's a method of trying to put impose certainty on an environment that's fundamentally uncertain wow yeah well I mean um I guess and it worked for him. It yeah. does work for you because yeah. what it does is it allow it, it gives you soothes your brain. It gives you yeah, an impression of control. Well, it yeah. seems to for him anyway. Fascinating film. I think you yeah, would must, really get into it yeah, because you're sounds, such a sport head as we all I are. I mean, now. who would have thought that the pattern of this podcast would be <clears throat> me, from me going from lengthy monologues about music theory into yeah. lengthy monologues about sports? I know psychology. it's been seamless. Um, <laughs> and the only real like the uh, the only oh, I just really wish that the I really wish that the women's World Cup had not ended with that Spanish football chief kissing that player. Like, did you see this? So the head of football for Spain, I can't remember his name, I wrote it down, was congratulating the winning team and he pulls this player into him, can't remember her name either, sorry everybody, um, and he puts his hand on the back of her head and he kisses her on the mouth. Oh, are they in a relationship? No. Oh. (laughs) And she's interviewed afterwards and she goes, I, no, I didn't like that. And then he's sort of apologised and now she's apologised to him oh, and, you know, no. you're so amazing. And I just think, guys, like, oh. really? Oh. Why would you take something that we've all been enjoying and make it gross? <laughs> just I didn't say that. Don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's foul. It's just like, I mean, you, I saw the footage and just went, oh, my God, who is that guy? Like, <laughs> but like, Hence me asking if they were going out because I can't really imagine a no. scenario in which you'd do that Negative. to someone unless no. they were your actual partner. Not doing it even a little bit. <laughs> I feel a bit like this year has been kind of the rise of the unexpected female role models because the other people who I feel like came out of nowhere and that the whole country kind of embraced them was um, Gina Chick and oh. Kate Grayrock who yeah. were so amazing on Alone Australia yeah. surviving in the wilderness doing stuff that traditionally people think of as men that and you mm. know Alone every other season of Alone and there's been a squillion of them overseas have been won by men really and then this unbelievable <clears throat> woman comes along and just blows everyone out of the water with her extraordinary resilience yeah. she is um, Australian stories back um, this week and Gina Chick <gasps> is. Have you got Gina? Yes. Oh. And we're also doing, I think by the time this episode goes out, it'll either be on iView or about to land on iView. We're doing this one off special called Australian Story Live where we've got an audience of people is this coming. just so you can be in a room with Gina? Exactly. Oh <laughs> I have manufactured this whole thing. We're having a screening of, and don't tickets are already gone, so don't don't look for them. We're having a screening of Australian Story in a cinema, the Palace oh. Cinema, and there's an audience of people who are coming to watch that and then Gina and I are having a half-hour conversation. How cool because often when I watch Australian Story, I do want to know how the, like, how they, what they thought because, you know, Australian Story, I mean, I make Kitchen Cabinet um, on air Tuesdays at 8pm um, <laughs> and we spend one day with our guests because we, cannot, we can't get any more. So it's a big yeah. day but we make half an hour of television in one day whereas Australian Story follow follows them around for weeks. Yeah. yeah, and you just get these beautiful little moments but then sometimes if your subject has been done all of this filming and, you know, hours and hours and hours, they really don't know what the final thing is going to look like. No, that's it. Although one of the things that I find great about working on that show is how much care the producers put into 
liaising with the talent about oh, yeah. the finished product and how, you know, to make them comfortable yeah. and to ensure that they're okay. But, yeah, nonetheless, it will be, I mean, it must be full on because also you're hearing other people talk about you. Which like I going to your own be, funeral in a way. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, I'm so, so you're going to do forward. more live things? I'd like to. Um, so, you know, we're dipping a toe in the water with this. It's going to be recorded and then turned around and put onto iView so oh, you'll be good. able to watch. Oh, so we can watch it. Yeah, then. so you'll be able to watch the Gina episode of Australian Story and then the Australian Story Live with me and And then Gina. you're going to watch her attempting to use her MacGyver skills to get out of the <laughs> theatre before you just – do you know you what? Know, I'm scared she's going to – Spanish football chiefer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared she's going to lock me in front of the room into like having to go on some hike and to, you know, build, to go on some build hike. my own fire and like stay in a tent and be left alone. <laughs> you lied about being the outdoor type. Please, <laughs> yeah, <I also. laughs> that's right. It's, um, you know, somebody else who I was talking to about nature said – because I was like, oh, wouldn't you be – because Gina does this thing where she takes people out and they get left alone in the wilderness overnight. And um, I was thinking, oh, but wouldn't – if I was out in the bush all night, I don't reckon I'd sleep a wink because I'd be thinking I'd be hearing every noise. And someone said to me, you actually get over that pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> I used to, um, so I grew up on a farm, as you know, and I went to a slumber party once when I was about nine and it was in the early days of video recorders and my um, my host's parents had hired a video recorder so that we could watch a movie and they'd hired American Werewolf in London. Oh, and I'd never seen a horror movie before. In fact, I didn't even know what a horror movie was. So I'm like, la, 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 la. Oh, they're in a pub. All right, now they're walking in the wood. What? <laughs> <laughs> and then I ran out and I dived under the bed of Juliet, my school friend, and I stayed there for almost the entire movie. I was just like, <laughs> what just happened? I was so frightened. And after that, I, like it used to be my job to go and shut the chooks up at dusk, you know, oh. and so that was quite a walk away. And I was just convinced that there were werewolves that would come out and maul me. And I, just years I was scared and so of noise. So you wouldn't be able to go out into the bush because you no, because the werewolf I'd expect, was going to get yeah, you. Yeah. Even though there are no werewolves in Australia, but still. Not that we know of. <laughs> that was the exact same thing happened to me. And Jill, if you're listening, you know, thanks for scarring me. Which um, movie was it? Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, Where no. Jill invited me over and we watched Nightmare on Elm Street when we were about 13. And I just, I couldn't have like a bubble bath without expecting oh, giant knives to come out. Absolutely. And frequently I'd be lying on my bed at night and I'd feel like I've got to open my eyes just to check there's no knives coming out of the mattress. It was, yeah, they horror movies, not good for children. No, Who would have thought? exactly. <laughs> I'm amazed it took us so long to get onto that. Now, while we're talking about amazing chicks, because yeah. this episode seems to have morphed into um, something about amazing chicks, um, I went to a fantastic art exhibition on the weekend that's in Sydney at the National Art School by an artist called Elizabeth Cummings. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. I don't know very much about visual art, so I don't quite have the language but to explain. Like. <laughs> yeah, but I know a lot. Um, the but use you, of yeah, colour. But you're good at explaining everything else. Like why – Why? it's funny. I always think it's interesting when people say, get so nervous about talking about art, like there's a special language or code that, you know, you think you're going to stuff up by even opening your mouth. But it's so weird because like – you are interested in a million different things and you never hesitate to offer an opinion on fucking anything like, you know, sport, you know, entomology. Yeah, roll up my sleeves. I'm in there. But art, you're like, well, I don't know what I'm talking about. So. Well, but you do because you go to art exhibitions all the time. I just and you like know looking what, at it. But I don't, I don't. I just like looking at it, says no, Lisa. Because I, I don't just know. Just the entire point. Because <laughs> I don't know anything about the process. I feel like I can bring less analysis as to why something works. Whereas oh, right, with okay. a piece of music I can can go, okay. well, I think it works because of this or the theme music succession yeah. works for the following reasons. 
Okay, so all I can really say to you about the Elizabeth Cummings is that you like the way it looks. I like the way it looks. <laughs> and I think that the use of colour is incredibly creative and really masterful. And it's one of those things where there's colours that are put together that you just would feel like, oh, wow, I can't understand how they work together. Mm. But nonetheless, that looks really pleasing to my eye. And also, strangely, it, it evokes like some kind of emotional uh-huh. response. Right. So... So there's obviously something about it that's very powerful and very masterful because it just works. Right. Um, so, yeah. Magic. That's all I can say. Like magic. It's magic. Anyway, yeah. it's great. And the National Art School, I've been to a few things oh. there and I think they do a brilliant job of curating their exhibitions but also. Also you get to wander around. The National Art School is like basically it's a former convict, women's yeah. convict you know, prison. prison. Yeah. And, and so, the buildings are incredible. Yeah, it's heritage listed. The, the building that they've got this exhibition in and that I've seen other ones in is this like circular kind of um, tower-like building. Uh, anyway, it's absolutely, it's a fantastic they facility. do great exhibitions of artists, of, of graduating artists. Like yeah. their graduating art show is really good. I go every year. Yeah, it's, it's really fantastic. So I highly recommend that. Can I just, now that I think of it actually, there's um, the Sydney Contemporary Art Fair is coming up as well. So if you're in Sydney, I go to that every year because it's just, um, it's like a million art galleries in one. So it's at Carriage Works. Right. And all of the major galleries will have a stand there. And so it's like a tasting plate. Like you can wander around and, you know, I mean, there's stuff that's a billion dollars and there's stuff that's $200 and you just, I mean, you can buy it, but I don't always buy something. I'm just like there. Like having kind a look of, around. Yeah. So it's 7th to the 10th of September at Carriage Works. It's a really good day out. Even like I take my kids and just wander around and just notice what they get drawn to. Do you know one of my favourite things when I go to an art show or even just to a gallery (laughs) is if I'm with a friend I'll always go, okay, let's go around and pick the one painting that you would like to take home if you can take (laughs) any one painting home. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I love doing that. I remember going to the Sydney Contemporary Art Fair and that's where I bought that on a Freeman um, ceramic work, which is one of my favourite things in my life. But I remember going to um, a a gallery stand and there was a fresh Cressida Campbell that had just arrived and it it was still a bit wet. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh. And anyway, it cost more than my car so I, just, <laughs> I might just have to look at it and absolutely not touch it. It's <clears> um <throat> one of the things I think when we talked about the Cressida Campbell at the National Gallery, which is one of their most successful, if not the yeah. most successful thing ever, um, I loved that. It, actually, the Elizabeth Cummings exhibition has this too, but I love those videos that actually show the person doing something so yeah. you can see the craft. And the Cressida Campbell one, it's just oh. her process is just yeah. mind-blowing. And so, I mean, talking about nerve-wracking because she sort of hand-paints each woodcut and then takes a piece of paper and puts it on oh. the top and <laughs> then peels it off. And if it's worked, it's worked. It's like a bun. And if it mouth. doesn't, yeah. it doesn't. Like, I wonder it's if like, she has well, to do the full Bjorn Borg, like I'm wearing oh. my special shirt today and I'm... <laughs> She's I'm definitely in a special the same room. I've got three, 30 <laughs> tennis rackets lined up in a special order before I unpeel the thing. I had one more thing actually while we're talking about, you know, chicks ruling. Um, you know um, the two Kates, McCartney and yes, McLennan. McLennan yeah. I, I always go to say McClymont, but, like, she's a totally different Kate. <laughs> so it's like imagine if you put them all three together and they just did, like, terrifying mobsters <laughs> and comedy. I think it would work. Anyway. McClennan um, and McCartney, yeah. So a couple of months ago the show uh, Deadlock went to where I think it was on Prime, I mean is on Prime, and I kind of started watching it but I was so busy and also really sad that I sort of didn't get into it properly and now I'm right into it and I'm just loving it. It's like 
It's so funny and kooky and it's set in Tassie or shot in Tassie. Um, and Kate Box, who is the um, lead, who's the local cop who's investigating, you know, these mysterious murders or whatever, is so great. I just, I love her. She's really awesome. And she's got this offsider played by Nina Oyama, um, who's kind of like the junior cop who's sort of bumbling around. But like Nina is such a great actor. I mean, she's a really good comedian, but just the most lovely screen energy um, that sort of like tentative office junior kind of thing. Um, anyway, I'm really liking it and I kind of feel like I've missed the boat a bit because I'm only watching it now, but like um, it's great and I recommend it. Speaking of cops bumbling around, did they ever get to the bottom of who did the poo at that wedding, that podcast you were listening to? <laughs> did you I get to the end I have, of it? I, I'm not at the end of it yet and um, and I don't know, but my sister-in-law Margot is um, sending me sort of hilarious updates. But yeah, <laughs> I don't really want to hear the whole thing, but I just do want to know how okay, the, that who poo got poo? on the yeah. floor. So I've got my suspicions. Sp- <laughs> if you can just do like a a um, crab hot take or whatever we call those little quick quick shot or whatever those things are called that we yeah, do where you give the- as soon as the poo is located, <laughs> let me know. I'll be right back to you. Um, before we wrap it up, that one- podcast is who shat on the floor at my wedding. That's um, right, which is by. A hilarious um, New Zealand. Team I love how just, anyone just randomly listened to this because I didn't give the context would have just yeah. gone. Who? What? Someone pooed at the floor at someone that crab and sells yeah. at those wedding. Yeah, that's why yeah. I thought I'd provide a little context. Um, and also, it's nothing to do with uh, poo drops, uh, which uh, are available <laughs> on our website, <laughs> chatdenlop3.com. Uh, that Gwen designed. What? Bef- who even are we? Who even are we? Before we uh, wrap, just one more thing about some interesting chicks. I listened to an episode of. This podcast called Tough, Tough Love that's hosted by Linda Marigliano. Um, is that how you pronounce her name? I don't know. Ma- Mar- well, some people well, might say Mar- Marigliano, but oh, well, I it's got it's a G as in because it's Mod- Italian. Modigliani. Modigliano. Yeah. Okay, Linda Marigliano. I think you've that. Thank you. Sorry, Linda. <laughs> Sorry, Linda. <laughs> it's called Tough Love, and I just listened to one episode because I heard a clip from it that my friend Kumi Taguchi posted on her Instagram, and mm. it was Kumi Taguchi and Beck Lucas. Oh, um, okay. I like Beck Lucas. I really. Yeah. That is the whole reason, basically, I'm raising it because I just really find Beck Lucas funny and clever and engaging. I think she's great. But also Kumi, they're just talking about, you know, general life stuff and challenges. Mm. Um, And Kumi is one of those people who I always find really emotionally intelligent and insightful (laughs) and is one of those people I feel like in a different life we could have been best friends but now we're just too busy. And so every time (laughs) I cross paths with Kumi and we have a catch-up, I'm like, oh, I really want us to have more time together. And then invariably we both just accept that that's not possible and we go, well, this Three hours that we spent together has been awesome. Right. I hope we can do it again soon. I'm a bit like that with Julia Baird because oh, yeah. I don't get much time with her, but every now and again we just find some time. Like we had this great thing where we went, we drove for about five hours to go to a friend of ours' birthday sort of holiday weekend and it was the greatest five hours. We just absolutely <laughs> talked and talked and talked and talked. And like sometimes it's great to have a friend like that that by the time you finally get together you're just – bursting with things to say. And also that you It's just, not like you where I just bored of you within 10 minutes because <laughs> of like, and, oh. and also where you just know that there's no <laughs> expectations that one party's not going to kind of want more than the other because both parties accept that it is what it is kind of thing. And you just take the joy where you find it. Yeah. yeah one of, I reckon one of the really fun things in life actually is if you show up to a dinner or 
just sitting on a train or something and you get chatting to somebody and you have a really great connection but you know that you're going to pass like ships in the night yeah. because you just happen to be on the train between New York and Washington and you're never going to see each other again but it was just great for the three hours yeah. while it lasted. It's, it's yeah. lovely. Or that thing where you go to a party or a, some gathering that's a bit boring or something and then you see across the room someone that you hardly ever see and you're like, yeah. oh, this <laughs> yeah. just got ten times better. Virginia Gay is like that. Like not that I ever, not that she ever goes to a boring party but like, you know, I always think, oh, well, this just got 30% more fun, 50, 70, I don't know, lots more fun. Um, we're, yeah, you're, I, I can see that you're winding down. <laughs> All right then. All okay. right then. So um, oh, don't, forget, mention, yeah, sorry, don't forget go. Perth. Also, we're coming oh, to yeah. Melbourne. Um, Perth show first. Did we talk about Perth show? I think we might have. I love doing the Perth show. It's, it's one so of good. my favourites. The audience is always really oh my God, revved warm up. and they always have yeah. the vibe that they've had like, you know, three beers each before they've got to the show, which I really like. Last time they went yelling out about us going to Gnomesville. And yeah, that's right. It was great. And that was a good tip because we went to Gnomesville. What it was, was awesome. There was something that everyone, when we said we were going to go to such and such a place, they all just burst out laughing. Was that Gnomesville? Yeah, it was or something else. Yeah. I think it was Gnomesville. Uh, and then Melbourne on the 13th of October, which yeah. we're very excited about. So Hamer Hall, yeah. yeah. That's also always a brilliant show. Yeah, the we're Mel- working Melbourne on some crowds. very cool little special feel like, bits I feel like that. our Melbourne peeps are just such book reading you know, oh, they yeah. just feel like they're right into the vibe. Way they show up. Exactly. Anyway, we'll see you all soon. Okay, see ya.